All right, now we're going to do, uh, we're going to be, we've been talking about the sovereignty of God. Now we're going to transition from the book of Isaiah over to this wonderful few chapters in uh, the book of Hebrews and talk about the sovereignty of the Son. We'll end up uh, eventually by um, a little bit before Christmas time, we'll end up talking about um, uh, even in the book of Revelation about, about those kinds of things. But we're going to transition today. So if you will read this next couple of weeks, next week we'll be in Hebrews 3, so you can read chapters 2 and 3. That'll help you kind of make the connection. And uh, um, this is beautiful, beautiful language. Now, I've got to ask you the question, okay? Who's the greatest football player in history? Do what? Jim Brown, that's interesting. That boy, that, you got to be of a certain age to remember that one and know what he did. Uh huh. <laughs> I remember him. Greatest football player in history. Is there, anybody want to argue with Ellie? Johnny United. See, I know I'm going to start a fight. I know that's what I'm trying to do. What? Jim Thorpe. You know, yeah, there you go. Yeah, right. she's going back further than that. All right. Okay. How about the greatest baseball player in history? I heard Mickey Mantle a lot. I've been reading a book about him, and I would have to say, it's at least my favorite. Babe Ruth, you think so? The Bambino, okay. Somebody else, greatest baseball player in history? Hank Aaron? Okay. Jackie Robinson. I mean, all these persons have to be up there, but it's interesting depending on who you follow, where you're from in the country maybe, um, uh, and kind of your own particular bias. It's going to make, It's going to create a little bit of an argument there, isn't it? I think, uh, okay, here's one that's probably even closer to me. What about um, the greatest musician in history? Mozart? Mozart? He was, do what? No, no, that, uh, those aren't, aren't due, due to be said in the same sentence. Carol, did I hear you say one? I heard one from back over here. Bill Gaither, okay. Vince Gill. Vince Gill. I thought you would say Tammy Wynette, but okay. All right. Okay, now, the point is, saying what, who's the greatest is kind of a, diff, a, a difficult thing. I've got a, a favorite old movie that I watched, uh, actually, again, recently. It's been kind of redone. Uh, it's actually from kind of the 80s, I think. But uh, it's a movie called The Natural, and it's about a guy by the name of, a fictional character by the name of Roy Hobbs. He was a baseball player, and, um, and his desire was to be, anybody remember? The greatest there ever was. Remember that? The greatest there ever was. Well, all that's up for debate. What we're talking about today, I'm going to tell you, is not up for debate. We're going to make a case for the greatest. The Bible is going to state where we're reading in this section we're reading the next couple of weeks. It's going to state that Jesus is the climax of all that God has done in history and that he is the greatest in God's plan because he's the divine son of God. Those who wonder who is greatest in God's plan have their answer and on this question no one can afford to be indifferent. Now, let me talk a little bit about the book that we're going to be studying for the next few weeks. The book of Hebrews is shrouded a little bit in mystery, um, um, but it has enormous influence. In fact, 
the book of Hebrews is one of those really unique books that is included in our Bibles, included in the New Testament canon, simply because it was so good they couldn't leave it out. The problem with the book of Hebrews is nobody really knows who wrote it. And Rhonda asked me this morning at the breakfast table, she said, so who wrote the book of Hebrews? And I said, I don't know. And she said, you mean, you mean you don't know? The scholars don't know? And I said, if you meet a scholar who tells you they know who wrote the book of Hebrews, don't believe anything else they say. Because <laughs> we just really don't know. Uh, it is, was attributable a long time ago to Paul, but it really is not in Pauline style. It was probably written by somebody who, had, who Paul had some influence on. I've, I've read long papers about um, um, it was Silas, uh, the the, uh, um, the contemporary of Paul. I've heard, uh, I've read some stuff about it could have been Apollos or even Priscilla, interestingly, um, who wrote it. But the truth is nobody really knows. And the truth also is that it was in such common usage at the time that the New Testament was kind of bound together in its canon. And it was so good. They began to, literally the debate went something like this. We can't leave it out because part of the reason is the stuff that we're going to talk about this week and next this important material that it gives us about um, who Jesus is it's going to give us this really really interesting study I think of who Jesus is and why um, this book even is important while Jesus may have been an important person perhaps um, the debate was raging in those days between people, um, between people who were Jewish in descent and yet um, were trying to contemplate what, who Jesus was. They were saying something like, while Jesus may have been an important person, maybe he was even an angel. He simply didn't fit the prophecies about God's promised king. So they were con contemplating, those who were just kind of part of the way in, were contemplating under persecution going back to being just Jewish. Interesting. I could save my skin if I would go back to being just Jewish, not Christian. So this book is written to those who are considering that. It's written to Hebrew Christians or to Jewish Christians uh, during a time of persecution. It offers a sharp correction to that line of thinking that I shared a minute ago. Because divine, God's divine son, Jesus, is the greatest in God's plan. Then to reject Jesus is to re reject the Father, to reject um, God himself. Now, I was talking to Cole a little bit as we walked in today. This passage is so jam-packed with, with richness that we'll use even sub-verses today. So you'll notice in one section I use a... 3A, 3B, 3C, and that kind of thing. Let's go. Somebody read if you will. Uh, Steve Blair, can I talk you into reading the first couple of verses? What you need to understand is that these people who were originally reading this letter were Hebrews, okay? They were Jewish people who believed. Then you must understand that biblical history would have been their history. 
The Old Testament was their history book. And so the Hebrews writer is going to, at the very outset, begin to address that. He's going to talk about, uh, in, in my particular Bible translation, it's going to talk about uh, God spoke to the fathers. What's in, how does yours refer to that? Your ancestors, okay? So it's really clear. It's talking about the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the descendants of Abraham, all right? God spoke to them. That would have been their history through prophets. That's what goes in that first line there. He made his work known through the prophets. But then as we begin verse 2, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. That's the uh, King James. Hath in these last days, so he's going to now address recent history and say that in the recent past, what the promise was, what was promised in the, in the distant past, in the recent past has been revealed or even fulfilled. You can put either one of those words there. God has spoken in all these different ways. Now he's spoken through one who is greater than. The entire book, all the chapters, have something to do with the Hebrews writer making a case that the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, your Savior and mine, is greater than. On the other side of this symbol, over here, anyone else. Okay? Can you catch that just a little bit? Deal with it? On the other side of the greater than symbol is anyone else else. The entire book addresses that. So if, if uh, Jewish people got sat around and said, who really revealed God the best? Here's going to be the answer that the, he that the book of Hebrews presents to us. What the past has promised, the recent past has fulfilled. In the Old Testament, uh, the word son that's used here in the, in the second verse in the Old Testament, the word son uh, sometimes meant Israel. And other times, it, son meant king. The king of Israel. For us, as it's presented here in our book, he is the promised king. The best king. And he actually fulfills a prophetic role as well. So, here's one of those things we're going to look at the second half of the verse. Steve read it for us a little bit ago. These last days he's spoken to us in his son, comma. Here's the next half. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. So the idea here is that the king's son is God's heir. The word that goes in your blank there is the word Appearance. The appearance of God's Son, the King, is the high point of all that God has done. The King's Son is God's heir. His inheritance, all of creation. 
why would it be that the Son would inherit all of creation other than the fact that He is the Father's Son, the Heavenly Father's Son? Well, He makes a case for that too. We need to look at a couple of verses to make sure we catch it. Somebody go back to where we kind of started out last week, um, in the last few weeks in Isaiah. Would somebody go to Isaiah 9, 6? Thank you, Estella. Somebody else go to John 1, 3. Thank you, Cindy. And um, Colossians 1.16. Thank you, Sally. Okay, we're going to... The, the Bible is amazingly consistent here. In the Gospels, in the Old Testament, and in the Epistles. Let's look at what, uh, what is said elsewhere about God's heir. Isaiah 9.6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay. Here's this idea. God's son, the king. The government will be on him. Okay. Now, let's look at something. Let's look at how John in his gospel begins it. Um, um, in the beginning, there was the Word, capital W, that's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. What does verse 3 say? Through him, the Messiah, the Word, hang on to that thought for a minute, and let's see if Paul thought that. John, uh, Colossians 1.16. Really key phrase there. All things were created by him and for him. By whom? By God, yes. But specifically by God the Son. By Jesus. John thinks it. Where do you think he got that idea? Remember he called himself the disciple who Jesus loved. Don't you know Jesus told John directly? All right. He thought it. Paul catches it. The Old Testament talks about it. So if all that there is will be inherited by God's son, the king, then he's going to inherit it not just because he was the king's son, the creator's son, but he's going to inherit it because he actually was the creator himself. You catch that? All of creation was his. Why? Because he made it by him, for him, Sally Ray. It was his to start with. Okay, now we're going to talk about some kind of big old th theological words here for a couple of minutes. Let's go to verse 3. Somebody read verse 3 and 4. Anybody? Hebrews 1, 3 and 4. Okay, there's an Old Testament word that is translated in the New Testament here. It's either that, it's that or it's, sometimes you'll see it with this. Sometimes you'll see a V over here. 
It's the word Chabad, or Kabod, or Kavad. It is literally the word translated here in the New Testament, the word glory. Okay, and it says that the, that this king, this son, radiates God's that glory. The word means weight. I don't completely understand the word. It means weight, the weight of God. Um, be careful how you uh, kind of translate this word. Uh, one of my most fascinating stories that I read about the glory of God is found in the really early verses, early chapter or two of the book of 1 Samuel where the nation is in really in disarray. Uh, Samuel is coming on the scene with, uh, with his mentor Eli, uh, who, is the, who is the high priest. And Eli, um, they're in battle and Eli's idiot sons take the ark of God as kind of a rabbit's foot into battle, and it doesn't go well, and the ark of God is surrendered, or it's captured. If you read on in that story, in the first several chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, you'll read that, that Eli, when he hears about his sons dying at battle, and hears about the ark being captured, he falls off of his perch, breaks his neck, and dies. His daughter-in-law, who is great with child at that point, goes into labor over hearing that her husband is dead, and she names the kid that was born uh, in that awful moment. She, she names the child Ichabod, for the glory has departed from Israel. The glory of God. They, they thought the glory of God surrounded uh, the Ark of the Covenant. We're dealing with this thought of glory again here in Hebrews 1. And it's the idea here uh, that the writer says that he is the radiance of his glory. Now, I began to think about this. Did you see the moon this morning, by the way? Last night, it was like somebody had left the nightlight on. Um, and then it was still there when I kind of went out to get the paper this morning. Sun's coming up in the east, and the moon is staring at me over here. Well, you and I know that the moon does not have its own light source. Did I, did I upset you by letting you know that? The moon doesn't actually shine. The sun shines. It radiates heat and light. And the moon captures that and reflects that to us. That is a poor example of what's being talked about here. Why? Because the sun radiates his own glory. And it's the same glory as of the Father. The Son has his own glory. The same as the Father's. Um, so we'll deal with that in just a minute. Now, in verse the second part of verse 3, okay, uh, let's go back to 3 just for a second. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his na nature. In the Son, the Father's nature, the other word that I wanted to put there is his essence, is fully revealed. Fully revealed. Uh, when I've studied this word nature or essence, uh, the word here... Um, exact representation. Uh, it's just very, very hard and, and weighty concepts to kind of get through. But the idea here is that the word uh, image that's used here is only used here. And it's basically saying he's not a copy. 
He's all God. And somebody offered me a bite of a donut this week. You want a hunk of this donut? It was a really good donut. The cake kind that has lots of icing, kind of, you know, glaze on it. A really, really good, it came from Hertz Donut in, in Norman. Now, they had all kinds of other nasty-looking things in there, but there was this one kind of plain donut, cake donut, with some uh, icing, with kind of some glaze on it. And as I walked by this person's desk, they said, would you like a little piece of this donut? I had to think about that for a minute. Why? Because I wanted the whole thing. <laughs> they didn't offer me the whole thing. In Jesus... You get the whole thing. There's not, it's, it's not the idea that he's kind of a, a faint copy. I mean, back in the old days, especially when we, we were first using copiers a lot, if, if you did what I often did in the past, I'd put a copy, uh, I'd make a copy, and then I lost the original, so I'd make a copy of the copy. And if I kept doing that, make a copy of the copy of the copy of the copy of the copy, it got really fuzzy. This was also true before digital recording. A copy of a copy wasn't good at the real thing. And a copy of a copy of a copy really wasn't very good. Jesus is not a copy. He's the whole thing. The exact representation of God. How do I know that? He told me that. He said, you know what? If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He is all God. Not, he's like the Father. I want you to catch that really, really important distinction. It's almost like he's like the Father. No, that's not a true statement. He is equal to the Father. Really hard concept, but really, really important here. So, the Son radiates God's glory. In the Son, the Father's nature or essence is fully revealed. That's what goes in that word line there. And it says in verse 3 that his powerful word fulfills all of God's purposes. It kind of says it sustains the world. By his word or by the word of his power, all things are upheld. Here's, here's the idea. The... Um, the physicist who neither acknowledges Jesus nor his father doesn't recognize that without Jesus' word, this whole deal comes apart. Everything in creation comes apart. It's held together by his word. Not only created by his word, but it's held together. Don't you find that really ironic? I, I, sometimes I just kind of want to scratch my head and say, if you really knew Physics. Wouldn't you recognize that? Well, since I don't know physics, I can't really answer that. But in, in verse 3, uh, in, in, toward the end of this, so his powerful word fulfills all of God's purposes. In the last part of verse 3, it says, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Really important concept here. Not only is the creator here, but he is also, not only is a king, but he's also a priest in 415, which we won't be able to, to uh, ignore. 
one of the most important passages, I think, in all of the scriptures, because it talks about that he who's without sin became your great high priest. The idea is that God wants to forgive, and so he gives his son not only as king, not only as creator, but as the priest, the great high priest. Now, let's talk about this deal of in what way the Son is superior. For he said he's superior, greater than the prophets. He's going to begin to go and he's going to kind of re review this over and over in uh, the rest of the book of Hebrews, the rest of this letter. He's going to talk about the Son being superior to the angels. I find this really, really intriguing here. Um, is Jesus' son greater than the angels? They were intrigued by Jesus' day of the angels and what they did. The Old Testament uh, prophets and uh, patriarchs are really interested in what the angels did. In what way is the son superior to the angels? What does it tell us in verse 4? It says he is, but how is he? What do you inherit? A name. A name. Now, we got, we got, I want us to deal with this. If we don't get any further than this, will you forgive me? Okay. Uh, somebody go, if you would, to Revelation 19. And I want us to read 9 and 10 in just a minute. Revelation 19, verse 9 and 10. Not on your outline. Somebody get it? Thank you, Cindy. And John 20, verse 28. Somebody else? John 20, verse 28. Thank you, John. All right, now, it says here, and I, by the way, I referenced Philippians 2. Paul believes it too, that there is a name that's above every name. It was a common name before he got this name. And now it's going to say that he, he is superior to the angels in such a way that he inherited a name that's better than their name. What, what's being said here is that... Um, that when I, when I turned on Pandora this morning and began to sing, listening to all this music uh, surrounding me in my home, I had no problem singing about Jesus, singing words of praise to him, telling him how much I love him. I, I've been told I can do that. All right? I have never sung a song in praise to an angel using his name. I've never sung how great art Gabriel. And if you start doing that, you and I are probably going to have war. Now, let me, let me give you a couple of places where uh, this, is, this is interesting to me. He's saying he's got a greater name because he's got a greater place. And he's saying here, um, uh, there's no singing to an angel. I, th I think it's really interesting. John uh, gets over to the latter chapters of uh, the book of Revelation, and he's, being, he's seen all this stuff, and he's listened to all, this, uh, all these great images that the angel shows him all throughout heaven, and he decides he wants to worship the angel. Let's see what the Bible says about worshiping an angel. Cindy, you got 19, 9, and 10? Revelation 19, 9 and 10. Okay, then the angel said to him, Blessed are those who 
John wanted to worship an angel. And what did, what did the angel say? Get up, pal. I'm a servant just like you are. Now, let's contrast that with Thomas goes to, uh, he skips church. You remember one week and Jesus appears and he misses all that. and says, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. Remember that whole deal? Uh, so finally in the upper room, Thomas is there. Jesus makes another appearance and he says, I want you to see the nail prints in my hands. Read 2028, John. Thomas exclaims when Jesus says, touch this, the hole in my side. I want you to see the nail prints in my wrist. What does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. Thomas worships Jesus as God right there. Did you catch that? Did you notice that Jesus did not do what the angel did in Revelation 19? Jesus did not say, Thomas, get up. You don't worship me. Why? Because he's greater. He is the exact image of the Father. Now, I want to fill in the last few lines for you, but it, and I'm going to have to quit, so here we go. If you read the rest of these verses, 5 down through 9, you're going to read some, several things that are implications here. He is God's son. He is David's offspring, the son of David, that promised eternal one. He is the firstborn. Now, we're going to, we would, if we had time, we'd deal with that. But the idea there is that he's not the first in a series, but he's um, over all, or he's the authoritative one. He's the firstborn. He is served by angels. By the way, all of these are quotes uh, either directly or indirectly from the Old Testament that I've referenced there. His throne forever endures. There is no angelic throne. And he is the anointed one here. He's the anointed one. I want to tell you a little story and then we'll go. Uh, when I was doing some study for uh, our, our men's Bible study of, of David back months ago, I read a, a story, it may be a, a bit apocryphal, but, but it was a story that Josephus, the great Jewish historian, tells about the anointing of David, King David, when he was just a boy, just a teenager. The story goes, uh, if you read the story in the book of 1 Samuel, you'll read about uh, David being chosen from among eight brothers um, uh, to be the, the next reigning king of Israel. And the way Josephus tells the story, it's that uh, Samuel brings his anointing oil to his anointing horn of oil to uh, Jesse's house over in Bethlehem, and they march one son after another in front of Samuel, and he says, no, this is not the one. Sure, this is one. No, this is not the one. This is one. No, that's not the one. And he finally says, are you out of sons? And Jesse says, yeah, I got one more, but he's out tending the sheep. And uh, so they call David in, and when he sees him, he knows he's the one. And Josephus tells in the story that if, if you read it, it's kind of a graphic little story actually in the Bible where David comes forth, um, Samuel finally can take the, the stopper, the cork stopper off the, the horn of anointing oil and he doesn't just kind of put a little bit on his forehead. He pours it on his head and it, it, shows, it drips down off his beard. He's the anointed one. 
What Josephus adds to that story is that he adds that Josephus, uh, that Samuel, the old prophet who knew that he was the one, comes to him and right in his ear says, whispers to him where nobody else can hear, you will be king. And sure enough, he was. That was David's anointing. Do you notice what the Bible says here? There's one who's greater. And God the Father has whispered in his ear, you are the king. He's the master we serve. He'll be there for all eternity. And if, he's, if that is true of him for all of eternity, don't you think he's available for my needs and my issues? He's my great high priest. We'll be in chapter 3 next week. I'll see you there.